Thanks for tuning into the Texas Family Law Podcast, where we provide you tips and insight to help you navigate divorce and child custody situations. This is Brian Walters. And I'm Jake Gilbreth. We are the managing partners at Walters Gilbreth PLLC with offices in Houston, Austin, and Dallas. And we're both board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Your hosts are broadcasting from the Lone Star State of Texas, where both have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates, both inside and outside the courtroom. All right. So this week we are going to talk about a pretty common question, which is um, what to do if you think that your spouse is hiding assets. I think it's not an uncommon thing for at least there to be a suspicion. I was actually having this conversation with a family lawyer friend of mine a couple of weeks ago about how different different couples have their finances set up differently. Sometimes somebody comes in the consult and everything's joint, joint bank accounts. They have access to each other's retirement accounts, brokerage accounts. Everybody has each other's passwords. Everything's open, even though that doesn't preclude that somebody's hiding assets. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then other times you have where spouses have their own financial accounts and they don't have each other's passwords or more extreme. And we see this quite a bit where one spouse is controlling of all the finances um, where he or she doesn't let the other spouse know what the finances are, what money there is, where it's kept, what's been moved around. And I think it's a scale as far as what red flags there are, as far as whether or not there's hidden assets or not. And that's one that I think a lot of times raises questions and has to be looked at. So, Brian, when you have that come up in, in a consult or in a case, like there's questions about hidden assets. What's What do you tell people? What's the first steps that you take? What can somebody do if they've got suspicions about a spouse hiding assets? Yeah, I typically start with uh, a cost-benefit analysis because it, it is a very common concern. And I think that if spouses felt that they could get away with it, we'd see it a lot more frequently than we do. I, as a practical matter, you don't see it as often as you would think. And, and that's largely, I think, because it is for most people who you know have a kind of nine to five job, have a salary, have some 401k and some equity in the house and some assets here and there. For most people, hiding assets is difficult to do because there would be a clear financial paper trail and or not worth the effort or not worth the, the chance of getting getting caught. So, and it's expensive and it can be expensive and difficult to really look into things carefully. And so before we go down that path, I really want to understand what type of assets might be hidden or possibly could be hidden and talk about what the, what the pluses and minuses and the cost would be of really going after those. So that's where I start the conversation. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's it's important to remember, too, is you don't have to start full bore, this huge forensic investigation and audit. You can always start smaller and send standard discovery or asking for a couple years worth of bank statements, which is pretty standard in any divorce, even if you don't have concerns about hidden assets. It's pretty standard to exchange a couple years worth of um, bank statements, credit card statements, financial statements, stuff like that. It's pretty standard to run a credit report and look at that and then look and see if anything seems, you know, out of whack. And if it seems out of whack, then you have the ability to dig more and ask for more statements. You can start smaller and then and dig into it. Or on the other extreme, if you just know it, we can kick off cases 
on the extreme of um, saying you know, really exp- expansive discovery requests and subpoenas. I'm going to tell a war story. When I was, I think, a two or three year associate, the wife was cut off from all the finances and the husband was clearly, he had all the indications that he was hiding things and not disclosing things to her. So he was out of town for a hunting trip. And so we decided to take a little field trip to the house with the locksmith and opened all the safes and including a four floor safe. Locksmith drilled, that was an interesting night and pulled out half a million dollars of gold coins from the floor safe, which I promise you, if we hadn't done that, as soon as the divorce would have been filed, that safe would have been empty and be, what are you talking about? There's no gold coins. Likewise, Brian, how many times in a divorce do you see a safe deposit box in a quick visit to the safe deposit box when the, uh, the divorce is filed? That's really common. And in certain cultures, it's very common to have gold jewelry or gold bullion or those type of things in the in possession or as part of a marriage or wedding ceremony. And for those things then to be stored in a safe deposit box. And you're right, inevitably, it seems that th- those are empty suddenly at, when a divorce is filed. And fortunately, we can, usually there's good record keeping about who was the last person in the safe deposit box. And so we can at least establish about who had the the motive or the opportunity to remove items. Sometimes proving what was actually in there is more difficult. So it's common. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Of course, the the common story is say wife visited second to last and husband visited last. So you go, okay, the money's missing. So it must've been husband because he went there and and he's the last one there. Then the husband goes, no, I went there to go check to see if it was still there. That's why I'm the last one there. And I checked and oh my goodness, it's empty. It's, those are hard. I think people forget it just comes down to at the end of the day, a judge or our jury in some instances, but a judge has to make a decision about who's telling the truth. And it's like you're saying with what's in the safe deposit box, it's the, well, yeah, I cleared it out and there was a gold trinket and a thousand dollars in cash and a passport. And the other spouse is going, what are you talking about? We kept a million dollars in cash in that safe deposit box. That's, yeah, it's a hard one. It comes down to what the court um, believes. And and if you can show some records and and cash withdrawals and where it's not going anywhere logically, except for the safe deposit box. But there's ways of piecing it together, but it's a common problem. So what do you do, Brian? Do you ever hire a forensic accountant when it really is a legitimate concern that there's missing money? Sure. And again, that's a relatively expensive undertaking. So I think you should only do that if you're, if, if there's the possibility um, or likelihood that there's, uh, that's out there. And, and to me, the big risk factors are cash business rather than just everything being, as I said, a paycheck or a draw or something like that. For example, the, the $500,000 in gold coins in the floor safe you mentioned, if they had been just your salary getting people, he would have uh, had to have taken $500,000 out of the the bank account at some point, all at once or over time to purchase those coins. And so that would have been pretty easy to trace if they ran a cash business, not you just pocket $10,000 a month in cash. And after 50 months, you've got yourself your money and there's no record of it. So that's number one risk. I think number two is overseas transactions, whether that's transfers to family members or purchases overseas, those things can be very difficult to track and follow. I think another one is business deals with family members or close friends, those type of things, which could be somebody's kind of holding things or 
didn't took a an, what seems to be an unfavorable deal, and then they're going to pay him back after the divorce. Those are the ones that would get my attention and would probably trigger some type of further investigation, whether that's a forensic account, accountant or something else. Yeah, I think I would add to that list. The had one, you know, construction business or any type of restoration business, and really, actually, it really any type of business you could do this. And we see this sometimes. Somebody owes at the end of the job, a customer owes five thousand dollars. And the spouse says, okay, I'm going to write that off, pay me 3000 in cash, which a lot of times is maybe originally done to keep the IRS, screw the IRS, but then you keep it, you don't tell your spouse about it. And then that takes a lot of effort to work backwards on that. Can be done. There's books for it, but there's a lot of things uh, to work backwards on it. You know, I think back to how you handle these, we have situations like this, safe deposit boxes, concerns about cash business, stuff like that. Never underestimate the value of a good deposition early on in the case. It doesn't even have to be a long one. It's remember depositions where the lawyer gets to sit down, your lawyer gets to sit down with your spouse under oath with the other lawyer there and ask questions. It's different than a discovery request. If you send interrogatories, somebody's got 30 days to respond. Interrogatories are questions that you send, 25 questions that you can send. And if you send an interrogatory, it says, hey, tell me about how you deal with cash in your business somebody's got 30 days to to think about it and probably figure out why you're asking that question and come up with a a good answer or what they perceive to be a good answer to explain themselves as opposed to if you just take that quick deposition which I know Brian I think you're the one that that taught me that it's just take a quick deposition at the beginning of a case somebody doesn't have time to prepare they probably don't think that you're prepared or that you have that you, about the business or are going to come at them with these questions and you have the ability to just I don't, I don't say spring it on them but get them on the spot. We don't have time to think about it and come up with a story. And I think you can get a lot on that. I know when we were dealing with the, the cash business for the construction business, for example, where what they were doing is writing off the final AR, but taking cash. And then of course that cash would disappear. We didn't send any discovery request on that. We just deposed the CFO and an hour and a half into the deposition, just say, oh, oh, by the way, tell me about this. And he wasn't expecting it. He hadn't been prepped by the husband of the case. And so he told us the truth, which was awful for the husband, but told us the truth and said, yeah, we, we do that and we pocket the cash. And no, I don't know where the cash goes. And that that made a big difference in that case. But going back to the point of you, you need to ask for, you need to have a lawyer that knows what to ask, knows what to look for. Because like back to your point, Brian, you don't want to start every single case off spending $20,000 on a fishing expedition and and come up with nothing. That's not good advocacy. But the, on the flip side, you need to know when to have you have the suspicions raised. Does the lawyer know where there's there's smoke, and then go looking for the fire? So, Brian, what is as far as back to the point of forensic accounting? What have you had forensic accountants do as far as trying to track down whether or not there's hidden money, assets out there, that type of thing? Yeah. So, I think you would start with. The bank records, both personal and business, if there is a business, and making sure there's no unusual or suspicious or odd transactions. And to some extent, you don't. Some of those you don't need a forensic accountant. If you see a three hundred thousand dollar cash withdrawal shortly before the divorce, and there's no explanation for where that went, I, I think you can be pretty sure that's a hidden asset. It doesn't take in a forensic accountant to tell that. 
So that's an extreme example, but there may be patterns or behaviors that, that they would be looking for. Additionally, they, especially when it comes to a business, which can be very complex, as you mentioned, about how accounts receivable are handled or accounts payable or vendors or write-offs. Those are things that you'd want them to look at and to try to figure out if there's something unusual or odd that's within those. And then Again, another red flag area would be business transactions and interactions between business partners, uh, also overseas overseas transactions. So those are the, the places where I'd have them start. But to be specific to what we suspected was out there, I don't want them to go on the fishing expedition. I want them to be pretty, at least initially, be pretty focused on, on what they look at. How about you? Yeah, I'm the same way. It's just... I'll usually, step one, make sure you have all the statements, make sure you have, every, you're not missing gaps or anything like that. Uh, I'll usually get the, on the on a phone call or Zoom call with the, the expert and the client, sort of talk about what we're looking for. We have people that we work with routinely and tell them what the suspicions are, what we can, what we want to track down. And the people I work with, and I know the same for you, Brian, they do a good job following that scope, but then just like us, let us know if there's anything fishy out there or they want to look into something more and sometimes they come back and go yeah there's a lot of transactions guys but it's we can track them all down it's all there and sometimes they say there's a lot of missing money or sometimes they say there's missing money but we i want you to ask these questions in the deposition maybe there's a reasonable explanation maybe there's some follow-up documentation we need but yeah having somebody look at it, having a professional look at it when appropriate is is really helpful and then to wrap up i think one thing and i preach this a lot I think people forget to do this in their practice. What do you do when you find the hidden asset? Uh, I see a lot of lawyers, what they do is when they find the hidden asset, then they goes on the spreadsheet. Okay, we found the $50,000 in cash that you weren't telling anybody about. We found the you know bank account, the, the transfers to your brother that were $100,000 of community money. And they just go, all right, we caught you. And they put it back on the spreadsheet and we all go about our way. I think what lawyers forget is the court at the end of the day has the ability to make adjustments with vision. And they also have the ability to ward and to take into consideration this type of behavior when they make that division and also take into account the attorney's fees spent in a case. So it's important to not just track down the assets, but when you do and somebody really is hiding assets, I think it's really important as an advocate to take it the next step. And that's, first of all, make sure to explain to the judge, we had to spend $5,000 on a forensic accountant and an extra $15,000 in attorney's fees because the husband was hiding money and we found it. And so judge, you should make him pay for, for the attorney's fees. You should make him pay for the forensic accountant. I think that's a really powerful argument if you have, if you actually were successful in the expedition. The other thing though, I think, and I think a lot of people remember that, but what they forget to do too is you can make a pitch that says, Judge, not only should you do attorney's fees, but you should take this into consideration when dividing the estate. Essentially, what this person tried to do is steal $50,000 or something from my client. If somebody goes and knocks over a liquor store for $50,000, you don't get to just say, here's the money back. Sorry, there's a punishment for it. And I think the way you make that argument to your court is it's, just, it's a fraudulent move to try to, it's a fraudulent act to try to hide money. If I was going to sue, Brian, if I was suing you for fraud, I'd be getting punitive damages. The Civil Practice and Remedies Code says that I can get punitive damages for that. And that being a, a damage is not just the damages to myself, but the punishment on top of that. Now, you can't do punitive damages in a divorce. The Schluter case is uh, really clear on that. But you can make the argument to the judge, and Schluter speaks to this, to say that, well, judge, because of the fraudulent activity, 
not only do I want attorney's fees, but I also want you to take that consideration and give my client 5% more of the community estate or 10% more. And I think I see a lot of people forget to make that extra extra move. They, they sit there and ask for the attorney's fees. They don't ask for there to be a tag for the fraud. I think that's really important. I think it's also important if you were saying, Brian, when it's the question of what we don't know at the end of the day, and you if, if you can't, if you can prove that money's missing, but not exactly what it is, and I think you need to remember to make the argument to the court that there is money out there that we don't know about. And so, Judge, you should take that into consideration when you divide up the estate and give my client more than you would have otherwise been inclined to, to give that to give the client. But you know, it's a broad topic. It's it comes up in various different ways. I'm always fascinated with the different ways that hidden assets pop up in cases and how people either intentionally or unintentionally hide stuff from their spouses or try to defraud their spouses during the during the marriage. And it's just something as practitioners we have to be aware of and look into in every single case. So with that, do you have anything to add uh, to our topic, Brian? No, I think that covers it very well. And I hope this is helpful. We could certainly dig into this some more and probably will in the future, but that's a good, I think, initial in, uh, overview of this important topic. Absolutely. All right. We'll wrap up and see everybody next time. All Take right. care. Bye.